Hello friends, it's Jim Nance and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to Beyond the Clubhouse, a podcast hosted by my friend Garrett Johnston. He is a testament to one of the great things about this sport, the friendships that come from playing or even just talking about the game. And you're going to meet some of the characters that Garrett has gotten to know from this past decade plus that he's been covering the sport. You're going to hear from players, caddies, members of the media. You're going to get the storytelling, the golf news, the players' swing tips, and a whole lot of laughs. It's coming your way with this edition of Beyond the Clubhouse. Here's Garrett. All right, Jim Nance, thanks as always for the introduction there. We've got Jimmy Roberts this week of Golf Channel NBC. He is host of Golf Today. He's doing live golf. He's doing interviews. This guy has done so much. We actually get into some of his favorite interviews, some of the moments he might have been nervous, although he says he did, he does this. This is what he does, right? So um, how much nerves play when it is a high-profile uh, person for him? So anyway, we'll get into that. He's a father of three. He's got three boys, uh, some of them in college as well. He's a Maryland grad. One of his sons is going to Maryland. So some cool stuff there with Jimmy Roberts. Before we get to that, we've got Encore Golf. Check them out, EncoreGolf.com, the Elixir Golf Ball, two-time Golf Digest Hot List Gold winner. The Elixir is crafted for both amateur and elite players. Perimeter-weighted design delivers incredible velocity, accuracy, and distance off the tee. And you can actually get 10% off any of the golf balls on EncoreGolf.com. Use my promo code B Clubhouse. The letter B is in Bravo Clubhouse for 10% off of the golf balls there at Encore Golf. And let's get to it. Jimmy Roberts here on Beyond the Clubhouse. And just as a clarifier, this was about a couple weeks ago when I talked to Jimmy. So we did talk about like the PJ Championship and those trying to qualify for the PJ Championship. But Really good stuff on his career, on his family, and uh, really what makes him tick. Jimmy Roberts on Beyond the Clubhouse. All right, my next guest, pleased to be joined by Jimmy Roberts. You see him on NBC Sports, see him on Golf Channel, Golf Today, Monday and Tuesdays there. A 13-time Emmy Award winner. He's covered every big event you can think of, the Super Bowl, the NBA Finals, the Olympics, you name it. Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, interviewed Tiger in 2000. At the U.S. Open, his first assignment for NBC Sports. What a way to get started. Jimmy, how are you today? Hi, Garrett. I'm fine. It's good to be with you. Thank you. Well, here, I'm looking at, um, you know, you, you, you come from, a, a, obviously, a sports family. A lot of the, your kids, your three sons, a lot of them play sports. And I got to ask you, um, the conversation you have with Daniel, your 17-year-old uh, high schooler now. He's going to Rye High School there in, in your area in New York. What, what is that like? Because I hear it, it's often about LeBron and Jordan. Who is the better one? And you tend to go with the, uh, with the older guy. Yeah, you know, look, um, that, that's got to be a frequent discussion in households all around America. Um, but we just talk sports. He's an avid basketball player. Let's call it rabid. Um, and anybody who's a parent out there probably, you know, would agree that there's just nothing better than watching your kids do something that they love to do. And he just loves to play basketball. Um, he was fortunate, uh, as a sophomore in high school to be, uh, part of a team that won the county championship here in our area in New York for the first time in 30 years and got a good bunch of playing time. And I think that, you know, he probably had a similar experience to what a lot of kids around the country had his junior year, which was a disrupted season. Didn't go so well, but he was just elected captain of his team for his senior year. And so he's all in on that. And, you know, it's really 
like I said before, there's nothing I would rather do than watch my kids do something that they love to do and share it with them. So that's been a big part of our lives. I was going to ask you, and you can add to this too, the most fulfilling part of being a father of three sons, and you kind of touched on that already. Um, what comes to mind, obviously, there's so many aspects of, of being a dad that are cool, but what comes to mind? Ah, uh, boy, that's a deep question. Um, you know, and for anybody who's watching or listening, you obviously understand that parenthood is such a complicated thing. I, for me, <clears throat> I think back I, all those years ago, I, my oldest is 24. And I remember I was working at ESPN at the time. Uh, he was about to be born and I got on a commuter train late, late, late at night coming back from New York City uh, to come home. And I happened to be on the train with a fellow from the office at ESPN. And we were talking about my impending fatherhood. And he was already a parent. And he said to me something that I've just, I've never forgotten. I'm, in my mind, I can see the picture of the two of us sitting on that empty train car in Grand Central Station late that night. And he said, you'll never, you don't have an understanding of the ability that you have to love until you have a child. And you'll never love anything as much as you'll love your children. And it's true. I mean, that's the, after all these years, you know, all the ups and downs, and I'm not telling anybody anything that they don't know. I think that's the one defining thing for me is that it kind of introduces you to a whole new dimension of your own emotion. And, you know, I love my wife. I love my, you know, my mother and my sisters and my friends, but the love that you have for your child is just transformational. And um, I'm so proud of all of them, what they do. And, you know, you live to try and help them be the best that they can be. Uh, I'm fortunate my oldest son is actually a sportscaster, which, you know, is a painful thing for me because, you know, this is a complicated industry and, um, you know, we live and die with everything all his successes and failures and um, or struggles, I shouldn't call them failures because we all have times that we don't reach the, you know, the points that we'd like to reach. So they're not failures though, because they're inevitable. And so the, let's just call them struggles. But anyway, he's a sportscaster and um, it's for me, it's kind of like living my own life all over again, watching him do what he does. So that's been, that's been a, fun part of my life too is to try and help him be the best that he can be yes well you mentioned your, your eldest jackson over there in uh, north dakota you also have aiden who's going to maryland where you went to school in maryland i have to ask you and daniel of course the youngest with those three sons um the back and forth between you and them when it comes to okay dad is so old school about this or, or he's he, okay he's actually getting with, uh, with the times on this topic well, what is that like between you guys Listen, again, these are conversations that we have that everybody has, and, you know, and it kind of reminds me, you know, I don't think I'm old, but it reminds me of that, how different their lives are. You know, when I, you know, when I talk about how, like, I remember when I was in college, there was no such thing as an ATM and you had to write a check to get money. You had to go to the student union or the <laughs> bank there and cash a check and use cash. I mean, we didn't really use credit cards because there was no such thing as a debit card back then. Um, when I started, I remember when I was at ESPN, 
and cell phones first became a thing. And it was such a discussion uh, for those of us who were on the road. Would we have, would they, would they allow us to have cell phones? Um, it was such a kind of rare and coveted thing. I mean, now I, you know, I challenge anybody to walk down the street and just in a city block, count the number of people who are either talking on their cell phones or looking at their cell phones, texting, you know, using the, the web function, doing whatever they're doing. They're ubiquitous. I mean, they're just all <laughs> over the place. And, you know, I know now when I say it out loud and my kids look at me, I'm like, what, life without a cell phone? What, what did you do, you know? Um, so we have those discussions. And, um, you know, as you mentioned before the discussion, it's the, you know, LeBron or, or Michael, um, you know, how the game has changed. One of the biggest things that kind of, that my kids, not all of them, I think my youngest, he really doesn't get with me is that I, I come from a point when it, or a perspective when it comes to sports that I really appreciate like the Jim Browns and the Barry Sanders about how they celebrated success. You know, I love the saying, you know, when you get to the end zone, act like you've been there before. Um, I'm not a gigantic fan of this, you know, of this culture of self-celebration when, um, when you achieve something. I, you know, call it old school, call it whatever you want. My, my, my kids like to call it, get off my lawn, dad. Um, <laughs> yes. But I, I think restraint is kind of cool. Um, and I not a big fan of this, you know, in your, of your, in your face celebration. First of all, I, I think it, you know, certainly as I see it on the basketball court, I think it potentially creates dangerous situations, you know, cause it stokes people's emotions to the point where, you know, sometimes they can't control them and, you know, you do something and you, you know, you get in the guy's face and you woof at him. Well, he's coming right back at you. And then inevitably that ends up getting more physical than it needs to be. And I just, um, you know, I just think about all of the great athletes who, when they succeeded, succeeded like they had before. I, I think of, there was nobody who I love to watch more than Oscar Robertson, you know, I, the, I can't even imagine Oscar Robertson getting in somebody's face, you know, but I also don't know that there were many who were any better than him. So I, I guess it's just, just like my, my kids couldn't imagine what life would be like without a cell phone. For me, it's just as crazy to see what certain types of, of attitudes and behaviors and sports have been become like. Hmm. Well, you speak about athletes who set good examples and celebrate properly. Um, it also kind of gets me thinking about leadership, good examples. And you have, of course, a book you're working on about leadership with Marc Messier uh, coming out in the fall called No One Wins Alone. How, how fulfilling has it been so far to get that together? Well, Mark is unique. You know, um, he, I, geez, where do I even start with him? So Mark and I met playing golf. We have a mutual friend and uh, we played golf together a couple times and he's a very good golfer. And 
uh, he had read the first book that I wrote, which was called Breaking the Slump, which is a book that I wrote, uh, I guess, 10, 11 years ago about great golfers and successful people who had overcome their worst times in the game of golf, that it actually kind of went beyond golf. And, it, you know, I'd like to say that the more I worked on the book, the less I, the more I realized I wasn't writing a golf book as much as I was writing a book about how successful people handled adversity. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a sports fan. I'm a hockey fan. I covered a couple of Stanley Cup finals at, um, at ESPN. I grew up going to Madison Square Garden. Um, so I knew of the legend of Mark Messier. And when I met him, it, it was fun to, to meet him. But I have to say that he wasn't at all who I thought he was. I mean, he's, if you don't know him and you're kind of your image from the outside of Mark is this big, imposing, kind of angry, physical, um, I don't want to call him a Neanderthal, but I, I think that's probably safe to, to say that he was just, you know, take no prisoners um, type of player. But now that said, uh, he was one of the smartest players and he had zero ego. Um, you know, for him to have accomplished all that he did, I mean, he won six Stanley Cups, captained, yeah, he's the only player in the NHL to have ever captained two different teams to Stanley Cup. And as far as I can tell, he and LeBron are the only two players in the four major sports to have captained two different franchises to league championships. But he's a really thoughtful, deep um, guy. And he cares deeply about leadership and about helping people succeed. I mean, it's not a coincidence that he had the success that he did. And, you know, you know, people might say, well, yeah, of course he won all those Stanley cups. He played, you know, he played with Wayne Gretzky. Well, he played with Wayne. He won four of those cups with Wayne, but he won one of them when Wayne had been traded to the Kings uh, and he was asked to step up and lead a team, and he did. And it wasn't the next year because it was uh, it was the year after that. So they won their last cup. The the Gretzky Oilers won their last cup in 1988, but then in 1989 the Oilers, without Wayne, lost to the Kings and Wayne Gretzky. And then uh, the Oilers came back the following year and won in 1990 with Mark as the captain. But then he went to New York and, you know, people know this story. The Rangers hadn't won a Stanley cup in more than a half century. And he comes in and they were a good team, but um, you know, they weren't a great team and it took them a few years, but, and they won the president's trophy right away, which is the, you know, which is the uh, award that's given to the team with the best record in hockey. So they had the best record in the NHL the year he got there, but then they struggled um, and missed the playoffs the next year, which is very, very unusual, uh, but then was able to come back and lead the team to the Stanley Cup. So the point is that he's a guy who I think exists. It's part of his DNA to help the people around them achieve their best. And it kind of was crystallized to me. We were once playing golf. We were in a match and Mark and I were teammates. 
and we were someplace in Florida and I it's like about the 12 hole or something. And I made a, like a 25 foot snaking putt, something like that. He was more excited than I was, you know, because our team was, uh, had achieved a, a victory. Um, and that's consistent with who he is. And so, you know, we talked about this. He said he had been keeping notes for a long time, wanting to write a book about leadership, or wanting to write a book. And he had never written a book before. I mean, over his career of a half a, excuse me, quarter century, people had come to him numerous times to ask him to work, you know, to do a book. And he just didn't want anything to do with it. The only thing he wanted to write about was leadership. And um, that appealed to me. I didn't want to write a biography of somebody. Um, but the idea of leadership and how he's lived his life, he, he's a, a, again, an unusual person, very unusual person in terms of his upbringing and his perspective on a lot of things. And I love a good story and Mark's a good story and he's a great guy and it's been a lot of hard work, but really fulfilling to work on this with him. And I'm really, really proud of what we've done. We're just about in the final stages of putting this thing to bed. We're working on the last chapter right now. And Simon and & Schuster is going to publish this. It's supposed to come out beginning of the hockey season in time for the holidays. It's called No One Wins Alone. So it's been a, it's been a great journey so far. And I'm, like I said, I'm really proud of it, Garrett. Yes. Well, I love how rewarding that sounds to you and starting with these friendships and how you get paired together with Mark Messier. And we'll get into friendships a little bit uh, later here, but beyond the clubhouse, of course, my podcast, so much about the lasting friendships we make because of this game. And also because of this game, a lot of my listeners know you on Golf Channel. They see you with Anna Whiteley recapping events on Monday and Tuesday. They're so used to seeing you either interviewing Tiger Woods over the years and other events. But I want to go back to the beginning caddying at Fenway what were some of those best uh, moments and experiences like for you Jimmy you know <clears throat> excuse me I started my parents were golfers and they belonged to a club as never a very good golfer I'm still not a very good golfer but a lot of you know what my life and golf were uh, was about growing up was caddying I caddied at a place called Fenway Golf Club in White Plains, caddied at a couple of places uh, in White Plains, New York, where I grew up, a place called Ridgeway Country Club, Westchester Hills Country Club, but mostly at Fenway, which is a Tillinghast course, which was about two blocks away from my house. And, uh, you know, my caddying experience was probably what a lot of kids caddying experience was, just a way to earn money for gas and, you know, beer. Uh, because the drinking age in New York back then was 18. Although I did this when I was much younger than 18. Um, really, yes. It was a great experience. You know, I learned about the game. Um, I learned about work. I, I think it really was my first job. You know, I had a lot of jobs growing up. I worked in the construction crew. I worked in a luggage store. Uh, I worked in an ice cream joint. Um, I did a lot of stuff, but um, this, I think, might have been my first job, and, you know, it was, it, in order to be a caddy back then, if you wanted to get a bag, you had to get up early, so it meant Saturdays and Sundays when, you know, as a 
teenager, you wanted to sleep late. It meant that you had to get up at the crack of dawn and be in the caddy yard. So there was some of that. Um, you had to learn how to get along with people in a work environment. You had to learn how to kind of take stuff from people that you shouldn't necessarily have to take, but you, you had to navigate that. It was great. You know, I mean, I think every, look, I think everybody should caddy. You know, I think it's a, it's a useful thing. I'd love to see caddy programs come back, but unfortunately in most parts of the country, they don't really exist. Uh, part of that is economic, you know, um, clubs to a certain degree, uh, I don't want to call it their lifeblood, but they make money renting carts out uh, to the members. And, you know, there's a fee that's charged for that. So there's an economic element to it or a fiscal element to it, I should say. Um, and, you know, there's a scarcity of caddies and there's a scarcity of people who know the game or care enough about the game to caddy. It's not an easy job. You know, it's uh, physically hard. It's, um, it's rewarding. I think it's great. I'd love to, like I said, I'd like to see more caddying, caddying programs for young kids. Well, I love that you said that um, you think everybody should caddy and you can see the relational side of that. Um, what about watching tour caddies? Does it give you a deeper appreciation for some of these tour caddies over these years that you covered? Listen, I have a deeper appreciation for tour caddies anyway, because, you know, I, I see them up close and, you know, I see what they do, you know, and a lot of them are, are terrific golfers who just weren't good enough to play on the PGA tour. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, you know, I think about, and I could mention any one of a number of people, but next time you see Kevin Kisner out there, understand that the guy who's on his bag, Dwayne Bach, he was good enough to have won the North South amateur as a golfer. And, huge event. Yeah. Yeah. And if that's a huge event, go ahead and Google the names that you see that won that event. And I think, I think Dewey won it in, I want to say 1988, maybe it's later than that, maybe early nineties, but these guys know the game. They really, really know the game. And all you need to do is listen to some of our telecasts and you listen, you know, to Jim McKay, Bones and John Wood, you know, guys who have logged, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rounds with the best players in the world and to hear them articulate what's going on out there, it's just mm -hmm. a different perspective. But these guys know the game. And uh, I always thought when I was with ESPN and still with NBC and Golf Channel, you know, one of my favorite, um, well, I won't call them favorite relationships, one of the things that I really enjoyed was getting to know as many caddies as I could because they really, you know, they're, so many of them are so salt of the earth and, and also – helped me. I think about when I first started at ESPN, I'll never forget or um, hope I lose the gratitude uh, that I have for the way I was treated by Bruce Edwards, who was Tom Watson's longtime caddy, you know, passed away from ALS. But when I was out there and I didn't know an awful lot about the game, uh, didn't know too many people, if I had a stupid question, I could always ask Bruce because he never made me feel like a fool for asking it. He was a guy who was generous of spirit, you know, and I could go on and on and name those people, John Burke, Cubby Burke, um, you know, another guy I got to know very early on, you know, Bones Mackay was good to me. All these guys, they, 
they helped me along and, and um, I'm really, really grateful for how I was treated by these guys and educated by these guys too. So it's a part of the game that I've always enjoyed those relationships. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I've done some writing for the Caddy Network in the past, these last few years. And just to hear the cadence in the voice, the excitement in the voice of a winning caddy after the Masters. Oh, yeah. Like I think of Joe LaCava after yeah, 2019, two days later, after, I, I talked to him after that. And you could just hear it in his voice, how much it meant to him. Um, yeah. With Tiger, he said, I, I, Tiger texted him, asked him, what, what question did you ask him? Or what uh, text did you get from Tiger that Sunday night? And he said, Thanks for sticking with me, Joe. I love you like a brother. And you just, you could just sense the emotion, how big that was. Um, JJ uh, Jakovac, a caddy for Colin um, <laughs> Morikawa, he was so stoked after that PGA Championship win, you know, talking with him. So it's just amazing what this means to these caddies. Yeah. I mean, look, I get it. They're, they're teammates. And I should have mentioned Joe before because Joe was another guy who, right at the beginning, you know, became very friendly with him. I just, for some reason, Stuck in my mind, I remember driving back from La Costa when the Tournament of uh, Champions was there to LAX, a couple hour drive. And Joe drove with me, and I remember stopping at an In N Out burger on the way back. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just like anybody else, or, you know, that you've kind of traveled with or spent time on the road with. Um, so, Look, these guys are, as I said before, they're teammates, you know, and it's funny. No one, the title of the book that I'm working on, no one wins alone. And it's true, you know, and it's changed dramatically because this is not the way that it used to be, uh, but it is the way it is now. And uh, they truly are teammates. Yes. Well, you know what? You've been a great teammate of ESPN and NBC and a big part of uh, the interviews during those broadcasts over the years with Tiger Woods and so many big events. Um, what's the most nervous you've ever been going into a big interview? Hmm. Well, my very first event, well, you mean a live interview? Yeah. I'm not really sure. I mean, I do, I, probably the biggest spot I ever had was, you know, 19 or 2000, my very first event with NBC, the U.S. Open, Tiger wins by 15 strokes 12 under at pebble beach and i mean it was still to this day what i think many people was would tell you well now it's probably a second greatest win after having won the 2019 masters but you know that was maybe the most dominant win of all time in any golf tournament by anyone and you know it was it was a great privilege to do that uh, that winter interview that father's day at Pebble Beach. And, you know, I was, uh, I don't think I was nervous because I just not, you know, my heart was beating, but it's, you know, it's what we do. So there was an energy about it. it I was excited. Um, it was, uh, like I said, it was a privilege. That was, that was probably the biggest spot for me, or at least in terms of, in terms of a live interview. I've done some taped interviews that are, you know, that have probably, exceeded that, um, interviewed some presidents. Um, but you know, look, I love to talk to people. So. Well, I, I'm glad you mentioned taped interview, w which one or two come to mind there? Uh, so, um, 
did an interview with President Bush 43 a few years ago after he was out of office at the Walker Cup that made some news. Um, you know, President Bush's family was responsible for um, the Walker Cup. I mean, you know, he's known as W. Well, that's W stands for Walker. Uh, I think it was his grandfather and great-grandfather were presidents of the United States Golf Association. So the Bush family has a deep, deep connection to the game of golf. And um, President Bush 43 had come to the Walker Cup at National Golf Links. And I used to have a show on Golf Channel called In Play. And uh, we... I knew the president because uh, for my first book, I had done a chapter on his dad and his dad and I worked on a chapter in the book together and I got to know 41 uh, while we were writing that chapter. And then uh, I was subsequently invited to the White House because I wanted to talk to 43 about his dad and he was very gracious and I went to talk to him at the White House about his dad. Uh, but anyway, so back to the Walker Cup a few years later, and I asked him about, at the time President Obama was in office and getting a lot of heat from people about the amount of golf that he played. And I asked President Bush, who famously had decided not to play golf while the country was at war because he said he didn't want to have to um, phone the parents or the family of a soldier who was killed in action. And um, he thought the optics were bad that he would be out playing golf on a day when, you know, somebody was dying for our country. So he chose not to play golf. And a lot of people use that to criticize President Obama, who liked to play golf and played a lot of golf while he was in office. So I asked President Bush about it, and he defended President Obama. And he said that, you know, the job is hard enough and you should do whatever you need to do to relax. And it made a lot of news. Um, I won't forget that. Um, that was a, that was a, a very rewarding. You know, look, I've, done a, I've talked to a lot of different people over the years. It's just kind of, it's not because I'm good at it. It's just, you know, and a lot of people don't think I am very good at it, but it's because that it comes with the territory. It's just what you do. And I've enjoyed it. I often say when I was a kid, I used to get in trouble for telling stories. Now I get paid for it. <laughs> you know, and interviewing people just kind of comes with the territory. Yeah. Well, I, I look ahead and, and you, you pointed out a great story. Even before Jordan speed, we're looking at the schedule here. Even before he won, you were calling it one of the great stories as he was getting close finishes, second finish, second place finishes on the West Coast Swing. What do you look ahead to with the PGA Championship? What are you excited about? I, I know Jordan's got to be a big part of the narrative there. Yeah, listen, he certainly is. I mean, I think he's going to win again. I think he's going to win another major. I just, I love the way he plays golf. Um, and I, I think he's just got the right demeanor, too. I mean, in, I, I mean, I remember covering Jordan's, I guess it was his first U.S. Junior when he was 16 years old that he won. Badminster, right? Yeah, that's right. And um, I just remember thinking that this guy seems beyond his years. Um, he's obviously very, very talented, but I think he's also just a good, he's a good guy. 
you know, I love the way he treats people. Um, and I, I look, I look forward to that story. Any, anybody who wins a major championship, I mean, what major championship isn't a great story? Just, you know, work backwards. Okay. You know, Hideki Matsuyama, Huge. Uh, uh, Dustin Johnson, Colin Morikawa. I mean, every major change, just, and just keep going, you know, just keep going. Every, Bryson, yeah. Yeah. Anybody who wins a major championship, it's a great story and it's compelling. And it's, you know, for me, must see TV because it's all life changing. And I think, um, you know, that's what as sports fans, I think that's one of the things that we're always searching for is we want to be compelled. We want compelling content. We want to care. And, you know, these major championships, look, you win on the PGA Tour. If you think about it, you go back over time and you, you think about how many people have won on the PGA Tour. And you plot that against on one side of a graph versus the, the other axis being the number of people who played. The percentage is tiny. It's just very, very small. Now plot the number of people who've won major championships against the number of people who've played. And it's infinitesimal. And so it's worth caring about. It's really meaningful. Um, and that's why I think every major is fantastic. Yeah. Well, speaking of major, I mean, what would be the best story at the PGA Championship at Kiwa? Oh, the best story. I mean, you're a storyteller at heart. Here, here's what would be the best story at the major championship, at, at the next major championship. You ready for this one? So, and forgive me because I don't know her name, but as you and I sit here recording this, uh, the PGA Professional Championship is being contested down in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Okay? Yeah. So those are the club pros around the country. Uh, the field started with 312 PGA professionals and they played the first two rounds and now they've made, they're down to the cut. And I don't know how many made the cut, maybe low 70, not sure. But in that group is a woman and I don't know her name, you know, forgive me, but a, one woman made the cut. If now the top 20 players, uh, at the PGA professional championship earned births in the PGA championship. So here would be your best story. She makes the cut. She finishes top 20 and she wins the PGA championship. Okay. Mic drop. Doesn't get any better than that. Okay. <laughs> and I, you know something, it's not fair to her as we sit here, I'm going to look up her name because she deserves the credit. I mean, there were five women in the original field. And she made the cut. Only woman to make the cut. G-A. I mean, even that step right there is a big accomplishment. I mean, these are these are the PGA professionals around the country, that, as yeah. a, for a living for them. So, yeah. So anyway, let's just continue, and I'll I'll find her name. Yeah, uh, yeah. You get to that. Um, I wanted to ask you. There's a couple more topics before we wrap up here. Um, you've spent some great time with Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, Gary Player. You, of course, get to walk there at Legend Circle and do some stuff for the Masters uh, tournament uh, over by Hogan Bridge, I believe. Uh, a few years ago, you were spending time with them. What is that energy like among those champions? They're extraordinary. Uh, I mean, just think about it. You know how many millions of people play golf. And they are the best of the best. 
to have ever played. And it's just such a privilege to me. I mean, I was very, very fortunate when I wrote that first book. Um, I, uh, somebody had come to me and suggested that I write a book and I didn't know what I wanted to write about, but um, it kind of came to me at one point. And so I decided I want to write about trying to overcome a slump. And the very first thing that you need to do is you need to, um, you need to write a proposal. And the proposal that you write then goes out to publishers for them to see if they, you know, have any interest. Well, what you want to do is you want to write something that's going to attract the attention or get some attention. So the book agent that I work with said, listen, what you really need to do is you need to, um, you need to find a big name. Um, you need to find a big name to write this with. So I went to Arnold, who I knew reasonably well, and I said, listen, Arnold, I've got this idea. I want to write a book, but I need to write a spec chapter. Would you work on it with me? And he said, absolutely. So I uh, spent a bunch of time with him doing a bunch of interviews, wrote the uh, chapter, and was able to sell the book based upon, I'm sure, a large part of it had to do with the fact that, you know, Arnold was part of it uh, at the time. And that I could promise that, you know, that Jack Nicholas would also be part of it. So it's all about relationships. And um, it's all about relationships. Okay, I found her name. Her name is Allison Kurt, C-U-R-D-T, okay? Yes. And I don't know much about her, I'm sorry to say, <clears throat> but I will. And um, if she were to win... C-U-R-D-T. If Allison Kurt were to win the PGA Championship, there would be your biggest story, okay? Um, she's a Los Angeles professional, and um, she made the cut at the PGA Professional Championship. So anyway, that'd be your best story. Yeah, very impressive stuff there. Um, before I let you go, got to get into the Ryder Cup just for a minute. I, I'm always compelled when I think about Sebi Ballesteros. We're coming up on the 10th anniversary of his passing, May 7th. Hard to believe he was so instrumental in the Ryder Cup. You were there in 79, your first Ryder Cup. 95, Sebi's last as a player. 97, you covered his uh, Valderrama as, as the captain of uh, Ryder Cup Europe. How, how cool of a story has Ryder Cup Europe become here recently? I think the Ryder Cup, first of all, is if you've never been to a Ryder Cup, you need to go to a Ryder Cup. And forget about being a golf fan. If you're a sports fan, I don't think that as a, a spectator, I've ever been more nervous than watching what goes on at a Ryder Cup. The energy level at the Ryder Cup is incomparable. It's just incomparable. Um, I think about some of the winning and losing scenes at Ryder Cups. Um, one of the most memorable things that has ever happened or that I've observed in my career happened at a Ryder Cup is 1995 at Oak Hill. So the Americans lost. And let me see if I can reconstruct this. So the Americans had lost. And they were on a little bit of a winning streak because they won in 91 and I believe they won in 93. 
and the captain of um, the captain of the European Bernard Gallagher. was Bernard Gallagher. That's yeah. right. And so he had been on a little bit of a losing streak, and um, he had followed a captain. Who was it? It was. Um, it was. Um, oh, uh, Tony Jacklin. No, it was Tony Jacklin. That's exactly right. Who had had been very very successful as yeah. a European Ryder Cup captain, and then in comes Bernard Gallagher, who had kind of inherited the reins from him, and had been beaten a couple of times. So it's the closing ceremony and Gallagher's team wins. Lanny Watkins gets up there. It's at Oak Hill in Rochester. And he gets up there at the closing ceremony and he starts to offer his prepared remarks. And he turns to his team to thank them. And he becomes very emotional and he's struggling and he can't really talk. And um, up pops Bernard Gallagher walks up to the podium, puts his arm around uh, Lanny and says, here, my friend, let me help you with this. I've been through this a few times myself. You know, you talk about Tony Jacklin and Jack Nicholas and their great display of sportsmanship at the, you know, at the Ryder Cup, the great concession. To me, I've never seen anything like this. This was the most hard-boiled competition. And yet up pops Bernard Gallagher to support his adversary in what had to be one of the most challenging times of his life. You know, he had to stand up publicly and be the face of losing after the team had won two straight. And yet there he is to support his friend. I just, I'll never forget that. And I mean, the, the energy, like I say, at a Ryder cup, win or lose is just crazy. Just off the rails. Yeah. And your friend, a good friend, Steve Stricker, is going to be out there captaining a U.S. team. He's got a lot of picks this year. It's going to be quite a compelling thing to follow, huh? Yeah. I mean, I love what they've done is, you know, to increase the number of picks. Um, I mean, I, I don't know that – I mean, what kind of formula? It's great that, that this thing can be fluid uh, and that they can – they should go with the hot players or they captain should have – the uh, latitude to make that choice. So at Whistling Straits in Wisconsin, I mean, it's going to be, I mean, that poor guy, he's going to be, I mean, he's <laughs> going to be in the cauldron in his home state, you know, to be leading, you know, an American team in an event that's, uh, that's got that much energy. I, it's just great. I, I don't have the words for it. It's fantastic. I can't wait to get there. Well, Jimmy Roberts, it's been great visiting with you here on Beyond the Clubhouse. And, of course, you can see him on Golf Today early in the week, Monday and Tuesdays. Uh, Jimmy, great to, great to spend time with you here. Garrett, it's my pleasure. All right, my thanks to Jimmy Roberts. Loved his insight uh, on the pod this week. Very cool stuff going on. Uh, some great stories from the past. I love the Tiger Woods story from interviewing him at Pebble Beach in 2000. What a moment that was for Jimmy to be a part of. Uh, but anyway, you can catch more on YouTube. Check out the YouTube page. We'll have video of this interview with Jimmy Roberts, as well as all the other ones, Kid Rock, and all the other previous interviews. Um, Beyond the Clubhouse on YouTube. And then also Instagram and Twitter. You're going to have some videos from the interview with Jimmy as well at Gary Johnson Golf on Instagram and at Beyond Clubhouse on Twitter. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch up again soon on Beyond the Clubhouse.